and welcome to the Formidable Over 40 podcast. I'm Sarah Pittentrick, a mum, award-winning entrepreneur, cancer survivor, mentor and coach. In series two of the podcast, we're sharing new stories along with the ethos that you are never too old and it's never too late to design a life you love. This episode of the podcast features Lisa Kaplitz. Lisa is the executive director of the Richards Center for Women in Business, who remove barriers, build community, and empower women with the confidence and skills necessary to succeed as business leaders. Lisa combines industry and academic expertise to drive equal representation and equal pay at all levels. In her thought leadership, Lisa champions gender equity in both the workplace and the home. She has spoken at various events of this time, including delivering her TEDx. And I'm so excited to hear more from Lisa on Formidable Over 40. Before we do, please can I ask you to rate and subscribe to the Formidable Over 40 podcast so I can keep sharing more of these inspirational stories. Lisa, welcome to Formidable Over 40. How are you today? Thanks so much for having me. I'm doing fabulous, Sarah. I'm so excited to be here. Oh, well, thank you ever so much. So for our listeners, Lisa, would you share a little bit about you and what you do? So I I think I describe myself as intellectually curious. Um, I love to learn. I love to be challenged. I love to be surrounded by smart people. um, And and I really love to develop talent and find the best in in everyone. I am a professor as well as... um, the co-founder and executive director of the Rutgers Center for Women in Business. I yeah. spent 20 years in industry before coming to academia. Um, I am married and am the proud mom of two teenage sons. And I love skiing, traveling, and anything active. Yeah, absolutely fabulous. Absolutely fabulous. And so Formidable Over 40, I, I've created this platform because we, we, we live in a bit of a world now where it could be perceived that everything needs to be so perfect. And social media is sort of creating this, this perfect bubble where, you know, it's like if you, you can be a seven-figure founder and millionaire by drinking cocktails and, and, and lounging on a beach in Bali. And it's all plain sailing. But my experience of being an entrepreneur and founding multiple businesses, it was never like that. And when I'm speaking to my my my, my friends and, and associates and colleagues, they, they don't share the same journey either. And I they, of this this sort of smooth and laminated life. And I think it's really important that we share the authentic side of what it's like being a woman in business so that people aren't under this this burden of pressure to perform to perfection. But I also am very passionate to ensure that the next generation don't feel that they have to perform under this false sort of, what would you call it, perfectionism. You know, that it's okay when things go wrong. It's okay to to fail and to learn the lessons from that failure and to move on. So this is all about being real and authentic and sharing our stories what does formidable over 40 mean to you, Lisa, when you think of being formidable over 40? Right. So it's 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 interesting because I think there are two takes to it. So I think you're absolutely right. And we have to demonstrate that it's not all perfect. And I actually wrote an article in Harvard Business Review recently with two um, amazing women, Deepa Prashathaman and Lisa Stromberg. And it's about 
the maladaptations that we women take on to survive in corporate America. And we call them maladaptations because they're not doing us any favors. So mm. one of them actually is the concept that I need to be perfect. Um, yeah. Another is that I need to do it alone. Another is that um, I need to have it all to be successful. And, and and there are a couple others, but but the whole concept of I need to be perfect is is not a reality because mm-hmm. nobody is perfect and nobody has a crystal ball to know what the right answer or the right decision is. And so I think that that's really important to take the mask off of all of that. Um, in addition, I think for, for, for that, in addition, I think formidable over 40 um, really means that age is not a barrier and we are just getting started. The life experiences that we've had to date have really formed us. And now we're at a stage in our lives where we're ready to pay it forward and really yes. make an impact. Yeah, and that 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 really sums it up. That's exactly my ethos as well. Through the decades, you know, your 20s, your 30s, your 40s, we've harvested so much information. We've gone through so much. We've seen it all. We've, we've made the mistakes. We've tried to rectify them. We have rectified them. We're, you know, and it's just, it is, it's really consolidating that wealth of knowledge to, to turn it into into power to ensure that those those latter years are really you know really mean something and we and we get the best out of them. I was watching a video Gary V had done the other day and it was all about um, midlife and and it was really interesting because many people say oh I'm just too old and I say you're never too old and it's never too late to design a life you love. That's my little sort of mantra if you like. And he was saying exactly the same. He was saying you know you get to midlife. But actually, you might live that midlife again. You've got the opportunity to possibly still be here because we're eating better. We're, we're, we're far more into our well-being and the healthcare is better. We could go another, another lifetime again. And it's about making sure, you know, we get the best out of those years, isn't it? Absolutely. And, you know, it's, it's interesting. I, throughout my career, I've always been questioned on my experience or my abilities because I've happened to look young. And in my 20s, I remember executives telling me, "Your val- I was an investment banker and mm-hmm. you're valuing our company and you are younger than my grandkids. Or as I'm, you know, in my 40, in my 30s and mm-hmm. I'm a CFO and I'm raising capital for one of the companies that I'm, you know, helping run, and the venture capitalist looks at me and says, well, you don't look like a CFO. Yeah. Or when I'm a professor and I'm a finance professor and yeah. I have other faculty questioning my credentials, mm-hmm. I'm 49 years old. At some point, I thought I was going to be old enough. And I find it I find it comical and, and great. Um, I, I find it comical not so great, but at yeah. what point do I have that experience? What have I got to do to prove it? <laughs> Correct, because I've done it. Um, I have degrees, I have titles, yeah. I have, and I don't care about all that stuff, but I also yeah. have almost 30 years of lived work experience. Yeah. It's, it's just crazy, isn't it, when you think, when, when you, when you think about it. And so, right. so we've got to, to where you are now at 49. So yes. if we go back 
to when Lisa was 15. And what, so the gap we've had from 15 to where you are now. So what was Lisa like at 15? What were her hobbies? What, what were you into? What were you doing? Sure. So when I was 15, I was a very intense athlete. I was a gymnast. And yeah. at 15, I was, competing, I was competing with a lot of the girls who ended up going to the 1992 and 1996 Olympics for the United States. I was this shy, skinny, awkward girl. Um, I, I excelled in school. Um, I also was on government assistance, so we had no money. So I would babysit for a quarter a kid, and I was a gymnastics coach, and I did all of these odd jobs, um, you know, to, to help get by. But in addition, I started a company with one of my really good friends. And leotards were expensive. And we used her mom's sewing machine. And we got it down to about 15 minutes of leotard. And it cost us $3 to make it and $15 to sell it. Um, yeah. Or we charged $15 and great margins. Yeah. And we called it Cleo's Leos for Carrie and Lisa's Leos. <laughs> $500 that summer. It was my first foray into entrepreneurship mm. or business. I thought maybe I wanted to do it, but I, I, I didn't know. Um, but it was, it was fun. And so that was me at 15. I was yeah. very different. I probably was very unsure of myself. I hadn't come into my own yet. Mm. Oh, but I absolutely love it though. And, and what comes through from that and that entrepreneurial spirit and flair is that maybe even if you were awkward, maybe if you didn't have that, the conf that self-confidence, the passion, the purpose for what you were doing and what you wanted to do still drove you through to, you know, to, to create that, that wonderful business that you, you did there. I mean, that's absolutely fantastic to, to have set up Cleo's Leo's. I love, I love it. It's fabulous. I've watched your TEDx and I thought it was absolutely fantastic. And we'll, we'll come on to that. I think that is just absolutely fantastic. And the main theme running through all of your work is gender equity. Um, could you tell us more about your, your, the, the passion that you've got for this and, and why? What, 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 what is the driving force for you to, you know, to make sure that we get this gender equity that is so, so deserved? Sure. I mean, I think that the, it actually all started with the gymnastics. So I was a yeah. recruited athlete and I knew I wasn't going to the Olympics, but I, I did want to continue doing it in college. And I was at that level to do so. Mm -hmm. And I had turned down full rides from other schools and was accepted to Brown University, and they ended up cutting my sport. So as a last resort, my teammates and I ended up suing the university under Title IX, which in the States is part of the Educational Amendment Act, and basically says if the government gives universities, high schools, public school, or any institution funds... Mm -hmm. And they have to provide equal opportunities for men and women in all aspects of the curriculum. And mm -hmm. in the 90s, that was all played out in sports. And so I found myself part of this landmark case that ended up going to our Supreme Court. It set a precedent nationwide. It added more opportunities for girls and women to play sports, not only at college, but trickled down to the high school, trickled down to the rec level because yeah. they saw this pathway and an opportunity. And I am 
uber passionate about the impact and the lessons that you learn on the court, on the field, in the gym, and Mm -hmm. how they are so transformative into making us better leaders, better team members, and better co-workers after we make up that uniform. I think you're absolutely, it's absolutely right on the field. On the field and in the teams, that's where it all it all happens, isn't it? And what do you think are the main challenges facing the campaign for gender equity in 2023? Sure. I, I think I think there are a couple. I think one of the mm. biggest ones, especially here in the States, is that we are in a child care infrastructure crisis. Mm. Mm-hmm. We are the only developed nation that does not have paid family leave. Child care is exorbitantly expensive here. We also have major areas, many areas that we call child care deserts, where there Mm -hmm. isn't even availability of providers. And unfortunately, women do the lion's share of the unpaid labor at home, meaning child care and housework. And the first research study that we did at the Rutgers Center for Women in Business was at the start of the lockdown. during COVID-19. And we analyzed this division of unpaid labor in heterosexual couples. And what we found was the more men did at home, the more productive and satisfied women were in their paid work. And it was really significant. So for every 1% increase Mm. in contribution to the home, women reported almost twice that in their productivity. And about a one-to-one ratio in their satisfaction with their paid job. So think about it. If men just do, and I'm talking about a heterosexual couple yeah, yeah. now, because that's the data that we had. Yes. Um, if men do 10% more at home, women can be 20% more productive at work. Yeah. Yeah. That's huge. It is. It, it is huge. And and I do um what one of the one of the roles I do is I actually mentor female founders and, and female CEOs. And they come to me, unfortunately, because because female CEOs and strong women aren't very good at asking for help. Um, they tend to not come to me until they're nearly burnt out. And it's really interesting that when you actually do drill down, uh, Lisa, and you say to them, you know, tell us about your your life. How does it how does it work? What what's it like at home? And and they, and they're, they're telling me, you know, we're, we're the juggling and and you. And as I say, you know, the pandemic, God, how they they coped, not just juggling businesses and running businesses, but all of a sudden it's then juggling homework, juggling, you know, dinner, who's doing the, the cooking, who's organizing clean. And, you know, and why and why is it? And, and that's and that's, you know, they're, they're exhausted. So obviously, if we can encourage, like you're saying, to get the. The, the 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 male you know side of our families to support and to do it's obvious it's going to free up space and time which is going to give energy and that energy is going to you know it's going to in, increase motivation it's going to then give inspiration cre- creativity and innovation and ultimately lead to 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 success for these women because they're just bloody burnt out and shifted aren't they Absolutely. And I think I think the equity needs to start in the home. But I think it's broader than that. I think even just removing the word gender from gender equity. Yes. is so important because these are not initiatives or policies that just impact women. They really impact everyone. It is really important 
to have men involved in initiatives that help advance women and underrepresented minorities. Because when men are involved in women's initiatives, those initiatives are three times more successful. And when yeah. those initiatives are no longer perceived as women's initiatives and mm. they're just perceived as initiatives, yeah. um, it creates real change. You can even look at this whole movement to hybrid and remote work. And mm. yes, women are doing more at home and it's, it's helpful, but it, it, men don't want to come into the office five days a week either. Mm. And so when we become aligned on what we all want, it's in, it's, it's really impactful because the policies that companies are looking to create to retain women need to be practiced by everyone yeah. to become ingrained in the culture. So I always say we need to move from policy to practice to culture. To culture. And mm -hmm. then it's not going to end up being discriminatory. No, absolutely. And in terms of um, you know adversity on your and during your journey. Um, would you say that there's ever been, have, have you faced adversity? And, and if so, how have you managed to, to deal with it and overcome it? Sure. So I've had a lot of adversity, as have we all, right? Mm -hmm. I, haven't, I haven't had the adversity where I've had to deal with the intersection of gender and you know, race, for example. Yeah. Um, I'm white, present white. And you know, I, I I know from my friends and my colleagues and reading that that even compounds ad adversity to such a level exponentially. Mm -hmm. um, I did have economic um, adversity growing up and knew mm -hmm. I never wanted to experience that as, as an adult. And so was fortunate that I was able to get an education and go into careers that provided me with the financial stability I needed. Yeah. Um, but as I said before, I've, I've had a ton of adversity related to my age. There was an mm -hmm. article that came out fairly recently. Um, I can't remember the publication. It was the Wall mm -hmm. Street Journal or the New York Times mm -hmm. that talked about the very small window. The name of the article was called From Babe to Hag, but it, it's that very small window where women are taken seriously because either yeah. we're too young and we're viewed as not experienced or we're too yeah. old and yeah. we're viewed as something. Yeah. Um, and so I've, I've experienced that on both sides. Um, yeah. and then obviously as a woman, I was told I don't look like a CFO. I've been questioned about my career goals. You know, when yeah. you have kids, you won't, you know, feel as strongly about this. You'll settle down, you'll relax. Literally during a conversation, I was talking about my career advancement within the company. Um, so all these questions, you know, why don't we have a center for men in business? Mm -hmm. And these are all the reasons that led me to create the Rucker Center for Women in Business. And, and how mm -hmm. have I dealt with this? Well, mm -hmm. I'm very fortunate that I have a great community and community is really important because it makes us all realize that we're not the only one who's going through these yes. experiences. So I have friends, I have family. And I have colleagues. I have colleagues who become friends. I have friends who become family. And I have family mm -hmm. who become friends and colleagues. And so mm -hmm. I'm a huge believer of collecting um, amazing people to be in my community to help support me. And mm -hmm. I, in turn, support them. Yeah, there's so much power in collaboration, isn't there? Collaboration 
power in numbers. And and I think also for for many women business leaders, for many female founders and entrepreneurs, it can be a very, very lonely journey. And there's an awful lot of, you know, of, of them feeling very isolated. And I think to, to talk about it and, and for podcasts like this and for people like you to share your story and your journey, it's wonderful for them to realize it's not just them. You know, they're not on their own. And, and that in itself gives them the courage to push for change because I think when they feel that they're on their own and they're isolated and they're a lone voice, it doesn't give them the confidence to push for change. So I think these conversations are vitally important to get encouraged people to speak up and just not accept it. Absolutely. And those are two of the other maladaptations we talk about. The fact that I need to do it alone and the other one is that um, I need to know it all. Yeah, exactly. That the, the need to know it all, which which we never know it all because we're on this constant cycle of learning. And, you know, right. there's always something to learn. So can we go on to your TEDx? I think it's absolutely brilliant. And I love the fact that you gave everybody in the family titles. I thought that was just brilliant. So tell us about your TEDx and what the, the you know, the whole experience of doing it and what brought you to to get out onto that platform with that message? Sure. So um, it was hard. It's a lot of work. And I, I tell yes. my students and I tell my own children all the time, the only time success comes before work is in the dictionary. I don't know who mm -hmm. said it, but it's very true. <laughs> yes. um, so I, I put a lot of time and a lot of practice in there. And I think that mm -hmm. comes from the athletic training of just doing it again and again and again. Yeah. But you know, necessity is the mother of all invention. And mm -hmm. when we, when all of a sudden we ended up in lockdown, I had my chicken little moment and thought the sky was going to fall down. And I knew I wasn't alone because the burden of the home mm -hmm. and remembering everything and the cognitive and the mental load all, all falls to the mom. Mm -hmm. um, in many, many situations, regardless of if she takes home a bigger paycheck. And so yes. it really, you know, was a, a byproduct of the research we were about to commence at the same time. All of a sudden we're, we're privileged and we have somebody that cleans our house for us, but during lockdown, nobody could clean our house and mm -hmm. I was not going to do it alone. And, you know, my kids were 12 and 14 at the time. And if they were as tall or taller than me, then they could share in the yeah. work that needs to get done at home. And so I decided to take all of my training, right? We talk about the different skills that we learn over yes. the decade um, as a manager, as a leader, as an educator, and bring them into my home. And mm -hmm. so I got our family together um, during that first weekend of the lockdown and Kind of had a team meeting and said, okay, guys, because they're all guys. I'm still the only yeah. one who looks like the table and said, okay, when are we going to clean the house? Mm -hmm. And we decided together that we were going to do an hour on Saturday and an hour on Sunday. And so I gave them these fancy titles like director of floors and director mm -hmm. of toilet and VP of kitchen and <laughs> got it done. And we got it done for six months and there were yeah. no squeaky friends in our house and yep. there were no crawlies. And so yep. I considered it a success. Now I also implemented a dinner rotation uh -huh. and my kids did this program at school, coincidentally, two weeks before lockdown, where they actually learned how to cook. They learned how to use, you know, 
kitchen knives and, mm -hmm. and not just dinner knives. And mm -hmm. they, they learned all of this stuff and then spices. And so I implemented this dinner rotation where we each take a turn being responsible for dinner. My husband did take out because yeah. he didn't cook and uh -huh. that was fine. I didn't have to deal with it. And then the person who did dinner the night before they would do the dishes. And so I have to say three years later, post pandemic, people are back in school. We're working. My husband's traveling again. I, I yeah. still only cook dinner once every four nights. Fantastic. I mean, and 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 why not? I mean, is it, when you think about it and you stand back realistically, why not? Right. You know, and it's 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 interesting about these these perceptions and the and the male perception of who's who and the, what the woman does. I was um, I've just been in London for International Women's Day, and my husband actually travelled with me, and it was so interesting that. He for, for for breakfast he he decided he fancied a hot chocolate rather than a coffee yeah and I ordered a, a cappuccino and it was so interesting that he the the hot chocolate came to me and the cappuccino went to him right and then another thing the night before we'd been out for dinner he ordered fish I ordered steak the fish was brought to me the steak was taken to him. And that it may not sound like much, but it's still in the back of the mind. That's right. still where we're at. Do you know so, what I mean? That's still where we're at. So, Sarah, you you hit the nail on the head. There are these social norms and these assumptions of mm -hmm. what it means to be a woman or what it means to be a man or what the role of the woman is or what the role of the man is. And I think those kinds of unlearning, those, I think those unlearnings need to happen really young and they need to happen in some of these formidable years. And so yeah. by doing what I did in my own house, mm. I want to erase some of these social norms. Girls do, there, there's a study that was done that showed girls do 50% more choice that, chores mm. than boys. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Girls do 50% more yeah. chores than boys. That's ridiculous. Yes, the, in yes. high school, kids. And so what why? Why should she already be conditioned? So my goal in all of this is if you are a parent, treat your daughters as equally mm -hmm. as you treat your sons. Yeah. And if you are giving an allowance, pay them equally. Yeah. Um and if you are partnered, don't just help with the housework and the childcare if you have kids. Yeah. Share, share mm -hmm. in those responsibilities because yeah. it, it's so important. It is. It's so important. And, and as you say, the impact, the impact of the female founder or just the woman, the woman of just being given some space to to breathe and grow through just being supported. And, and they're not asking for a favor. This is just how it should be. Why shouldn't it? Be that you know, I I have as, as, you know as you you'll see women in the same who come through here that they are the breadwinner. They are earning more than their partner, well and truly, maybe double in some instances. And yet they're coming to me telling me they're absolutely burnt out because even though they're the breadwinner running very successful businesses, their business is still not taken seriously. Their income is still not taken seriously, and they were still during the pandemic responsible for homework, 
for organizing the the food, for organizing the cleaning and doing. I mean, as you say, this is this narrative has got to change. The the research shows that even when women out earn their partners, mm-hmm. they still do more at home. Crazy, isn't it? Really, when you know it's 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 bloody wrong, wrong and unfair, and it's got to change. And that's why we need you, Lisa, banging that drum, and we need to march beside you to make sure that it it happens. So, in terms of um. I, I get a lot of messages from my listeners and saying, you know, I just I, I have such a lack of self-confidence and, you know, I'm, I'm suffering from such self-limiting beliefs and I'm at this crossroads. I know I need to do something, but I just don't know how. I don't know how to, to get unstuck and to, you know, to to make the change. Have you have you ever suffered from self-limiting beliefs, Lisa? Of course, I, I think everybody has. And um you know, I think a lot of it has to do with the stories we tell ourselves. And so we need to get out of our own heads. And mm-hmm. um, there's an anecdote I share every year with my students. And I talk about this this one moment that was really pivotal in my life that I remember. And it was the first time I was really in a leadership role. And, mm-hmm. you know, we, we've all been there when we've worked in organizations, on teams or companies. And you're in this meeting and you're really excited and you all together have debated it out and you're about to make a decision and everyone's looking around. What should we do? What should we do? What should we do? And all of a sudden you realize they're looking at you mm-hmm. and you have to make the decision mm-hmm. and you don't know a hundred percent what that right decision is. And it was in that moment, the first time this happened to me that I realized I don't have all the answers. I don't know everything. I have to make a decision. And it was in that moment that I realized even the CEO of a Mm -hmm. Fortune 100 company does not have a crystal ball and does not necessarily know that the decision we're about to make is the right decision. But in that moment, and so my shoulders came down. And in that moment, I realized that I need to make a decision and I have to use my best educated guess in the Mm -hmm. information I've gathered from my team to make that decision. And even if that decision is wrong, it is better than indecision because we're moving forward and we can always course correct from that bad decision. No, I think that is absolutely wonderful advice. And, and, you know, even if things go wrong, it's better to move forward, learn from the lesson than to stay stuck. You, you know, sometimes you've just got to put that stake in the ground, like you say, and you've, you've just got to, you've just got to move forward, haven't you? You've just got to go for it. And, and learn from the lesson if it doesn't go to plan and go again. Never be afraid to go again. Um, so what I would like to, to ask you, we're coming to the end of the um, interview and it's been absolutely fascinating talking to you, Lisa. And I'm, I'm very grateful for you to offer the time to Formidable Over 40. I always ask if my guests could pay forward some advice. So what would be the biggest piece of advice that you could offer to someone who's embarking on a journey of reinvention or finding a new direction? So I I, I frame it in a couple ways. Um, for years, I've been putting these two Venn diagram, this, this Venn diagram on, on my board as I give my students um, unsolicited career advice. Um, I call it, you know, lessons from baby boomers and Gen X. And yeah. I'm, I'm a Gen. Yeah. And one of the things I talked to them is I drew these concentric circles um, 
passion? What do I love to do? And how can I marry that? How can I combine that with what am I good at? That, that's how I mm -hmm. fell into education. I love developing talent in people. And I'm pretty good at making complex concepts digestible, approachable, and easy to understand, not intimidating. Yes. So I came across more recently that I actually am not the first one who thought of that. And it's this mm -hmm. very ancient Japanese concept called ikagai, and I might be pronouncing it wrong, so I apologize if I am. And it is four concentric circles. So it's, it's an intense Venn diagram. Yeah. Uh, one is what you love. Another is what the world needs. Mm -hmm. Another is what are you good at? And the final one is what can you be, what are you paid for? Yes. And if you find the intersection of these four, this yes. is your guy. This is your reason for being and your purpose yes. um, in your life. And, and I think that's really important. And I think, you know, as we, I joke um, with folks that I just am advanced and hit my midlife crisis in my early forties before all of my friends did. And, you know, my, they're all, everybody's going through this. And yeah. I shouldn't say everybody, a, a lot yeah. of people I know at my age are, are really mm. kind of going through this transformation and trying to figure out what they want to do. And so one of the things I tell folks a lot is think about what it is that you do and you can always pivot. And yeah. when you pivot, right, it's like a turn, but doing a 360 turn is going to get you right back to where you started. Doing yeah. a 180 is uh -huh. probably going to be challenging in one movement. Yeah. So what you need to do is you pivot. So think of a quarter mm -hmm. turn. You have two different kinds of experiences professionally, okay? Then we have all of our life experiences as well. But you have experience and expertise in an industry, and then you probably have experience or expertise within a function. Mm. And so for me, I started out my career in investment banking, and I was doing valuation for financial services companies, insurance companies, et cetera. But I had this skill set of financial analysis valuation, capital raising, mergers and acquisition. I took that and pivoted and did that for a company who was a publicly traded company, but I did it in a different industry. So mm. I went into um, lodging and hospitality. Then I went back to grad school. I went back to banking because I got scared of all my student loans. And so I went and did banking, but because I had a different industry, and I had done it before, I said, I'm only going to do it in retail and consumer companies. Yeah. And so I went to the top shop on the street at the time. Now, from there, I said, okay, I want to go back to the company side. Well, I had that functional expertise, and I also had the industry expertise, mm -hmm. but it was through a different perspective, right? I'm the client, not the advisor. And then from there, I was able to take all of that experience go to startups, because I was at a big company, go to startups. I actually took two years off um, mm -hmm. and stayed home with the kids, which was about a year and three quarters longer than the pool in the neighborhood thought I would last. And um, and then I, I ended up in academia. What, what I tell folks is I would never be the CFO and the finance executive, if I hadn't had that functional expertise I gained mm. as an investment banker, yes. I never would have been um, a great mom 
if I always had wondered, could I really be that executive? And I never would be the professor I am if I didn't have that 20 plus years of industry experience combined with the patients and understanding I'm still learning from my children. That's right. Mm -hmm. To bring it to my classroom. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, you're right there. It's all of these experiences, isn't it, that shape us, these experiences combined. And I have to say, I, I don't know about you, but out of all of the roles I've ever had, in 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 business uh, as a self-employed entrepreneur whatever none have been as challenging or as rewarding as being a mum right <laughs> i've learned or a lot as, from that or as negatively lucrative right yes absolutely you're absolutely right there so lisa thank you thank you for, for giving up your time and to share so generously with formidable over 40 for my listeners who want to know more about you and what you do, where can they find you? Sure. So I'm on LinkedIn and um, you can also go to my personal website at lisakaplowitz.com and you can learn more about the Rutgers Center for Women in Business at women.business.ruckers.edu. Absolutely fabulous. Thank you, Lisa. So thank you for listening to the Formidable Over 40 podcast. Thank you so much to incredible Lisa for joining us and sharing her insights. Head to the show notes to find links to connect with Lisa and hear more of her insights. Follow the podcast so you don't miss any future episodes. And please do share Formidable Over 40 with anyone you think will enjoy it or needs to hear it. And please do like, subscribe, and share.